So today's guest on the Kenyan Yoga Podcast is Govinda Kai. Govinda used to have a website called Lunatic Monk, which I think is pretty apposite. Having grown up in Southern California around the you know, mid-60s, incredible that he's actually shortly to be 63 when he actually looks like 45. He has been surrounded by the alternative and the counterculture all his life, really. And it shows. And it, hence, many of his views here are quite out there in terms of the energetic healing nature of the practice, for example, or equally his antipathy for just about any social convention, really, including um, washing with soap, even. <laughs> Indeed, he's one of the most radical thinkers I've encountered so far. Um, brutally honest, thoroughly committed to using the practice for self-inquiry. He talks of his own battles really candidly with the intensity of his own nature, the journey through his own shame and loathing, into what I feel now is really an interesting space he inhabits. Very inspiring as a character. Um, having grown up knowing the value of practice with a Japanese father who was actually credited for bringing Aikido over to America. So he knows he knows how to practice and the importance of method. He also hung out with Sogyal Rinpoche, who is the, the head of the Nyingma uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhist a school, and he hung up with him at university, which is incredible if you know who that is. So he really has quite a heritage going on. And his first glimpse of Mysore was in 1995, and he spent years going back, and finally he was certified. I can't remember which year that was. He was certified to teach by Batabi Joyce. So I enjoy this interview with Kavinda. It's a really rare treat. Uh, he hasn't done many. So it's a real rare window on his life and a unique life. Incredible, incredible experiences he's had. And if you've enjoyed it, then please donate or equally suggest me a new guest or otherwise subscribe to the YouTube or even comment. Anyway, I hope you enjoy and welcome Binder. So today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Govinda Kai. Thanks for coming on, Govinda. It's been a short introduction. We've just met. Um, so I'd like to find all about your background. Um, and well, I don't know anything about you, in fact. How you got into Ashtanga Yoga in the first place? How you went to Mysore? Nothing. So do you want to just give me a, give me a start? Give me an in, in somewhere. Sure. Well, I was, uh, um, I had the great fortune to grow up in, uh, the West coast of the United States and California, Northern California, uh, in the early sixties. So I was, uh, fortunate to be influenced by all the, uh, radical change and all the innovation, you know, both physical and spiritual during that time. Um, so, um, <clears throat> Uh, my father was a, um, a very accomplished martial artist. So he was, uh, his main job was a high school math teacher, but, uh, after work, he would, uh, teach, um, martial arts, specifically the, the practice of Aikido in, uh, a local rec center, uh, in the evenings. And he was a very, um, progressive thinking, very, um, open-minded person so he was open to a lot of the things that came out of the 60s 
uh, and introduced me to, um, yeah, a lot of uh, literature during that time, <clears throat> specifically the work of uh, Alan Watts and oh, yeah. uh, right. other I know uh, other s- similar yeah. type teachers. Uh, I think I even was uh, fortunate to uh, get some uh, words from uh, Ramdas and Sachitananda, Swami Sachitananda. So <clears throat> that had a very, very strong influence on me. I also um, uh, I grew up in a place called San Mateo, California, which is the suburbs of, of San Francisco. And a relatively uh, like conservative uh, community. And, um, you know, I, I grew up with a kind of a, a wild spirit. So uh, I remember thinking in high school, I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> so I found this obscure little ad for a summer camp up in Northern California, up in the uh, what's called the Shasta Trinity Triangle. So <clears throat> that's way far north, a lot of amazing wilderness there and uh the camp was being run by a bunch of ex-hippies so i got uh, a lot of my thinking from that place too like the organic garden and uh, stargazing and mountain climbing and uh vegan diet and all these things <laughs> i got introduced to at the age of 18 <clears throat> and came, it really transformed my life because it introduced me to the experience of community experience uh, the experience of uh the wilderness as a kind of healing modality um so i came back uh quite touched by that um and uh really started tuning into alternative culture um it was at that time at the age of 18 now this was like 1977 i didn't i had no idea i just have to stop you there for a second i had no idea you're so old it's a you look, you look so young. I mean, how born in the fifties? You, you must be in your late fifties, <laughs> right? Uh, actually, I'm. Uh, this year, I'll be sixty-three. You're kidding me. You are mm. fucking kidding me. Yeah. Oh my god. That's well. You know, I don't know whether it's genes or a testament to yoga, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, well, uh, I that's think it's, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. My, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my family definitely had. Um, my uh, ancestral line comes out of uh, uh, a place in Japan called uh, Kumamoto, uh, which is in the southern uh, region of Japan, one of the southernmost big islands of Japan. It's known for its uh, intense volcanic activity. In fact, my ancestors grew up under the shadow of a mountain called Mount Aso, which is uh, probably the one of the largest, most active volcanoes in the world. So when you see the landscape there, you see it's like uh, uh, it's like super mineralized. So you see these like Jurassic Park style plants everywhere, right. and the people there are particularly hardy. Right. Like uh, I had the fortune to meet so. my uh, yeah. one of my great uncles at the he's he was eighty years old at the time, and he was a uh, instructor of uh high level instructor of judo and a used car salesman and he had like together well prodigious energy like (laughs) i couldn't believe how and then it made me realize like oh i think from my you know bloodline i got the benefit of benefit of this kind of robust 
physicality, you know, and in intensity as well. I have to say, you know, it's a lot bloody of- incredible. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I was quite taken aback actually. Like talking about these dates, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. You know, you know <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. So I met <laughs> yoga in 1977, yeah. and uh, uh, that, in combination with you know all the things that I was reading and the influences that I was going under, I also you know was uh, influenced heavily during the from the music of the 60s particularly bands like the grateful dead and you know these kinds of things so there was kind of a renaissance of the 60s happening you know still especially i went to university in a city called santa cruz and that also was a kind of a holdout for the 60s generation so there was a lot of that influence of the 60s there so you know that really um it was during that time that I also got to meet just some extraordinary people and teachers who had very strong influence. For example, uh, you know, when I went to the university, I was introduced to a young man at the time called Sogyal Rinpoche, Sogyal, who had just yeah. finished his education in Oxford and was in the United States as this kind of rebel uh, Tibetan monk, you know, just going crazy, basically. So myself and a few other students had the great fortune of being able to spend time with him and learn directly from him, you know, these sort of uh, Mahayana tradition and a lot of tantric type practices. That's incredible. So he was just at university with you, was he? Yeah. So you just kind of hanging out just, with him as a student? To, he just happened to be there. That's incredible. So that happened, I mean, you know, yeah, incredible. So yeah, a huge, um, yeah. I can't yeah, remember. At the time, he was, of course, completely unknown, but, you know, and his, and his energy, his power was as raw, as wild as ever. <clears throat> so that had a great deal of influence on me. Also at that time, uh, even before I met Sogel, I was introduced, and even while I was still in the conservative community of San Mateo, I was introduced to um, a man named uh, Swami Muktananda. So... Story behind that was I was taking a class on the writings of Carlos Castaneda by this uh, very unique and unusual man from South America, and uh, he took us on a surprise field trip to the Siddha Yoga Ashram across the bay in Emeryville, and uh, he took us over there to receive Shaktipat from Swami Muktananda. So, uh, getting introduced to yoga getting introduced to all this spiritual literature, uh, especially the work of Ram Das and uh, uh, Alan Watts, uh, in combination with having close contact with Sogyal Rinpoche, getting Shaktipat from <clears throat> Muktananda. And I, I, uh, I just regularly started attending the ashram there just because I love the, the chanting. You know, they had a very, very strong chanting and uh, meditation practice. <clears throat> I was also introduced to the writings of... Uh, Shunyuru uh, Suzuki by my father, who was really the pioneer of the Zen meditation movement here in Northern California. So that also had, you know, very strong uh, influence on me and started mm-hmm. the practice, you know, at 18, started the practice of Zen meditation. Mm. So all these, you know, all this like one after another, all these very, very strong influences really had a profound effect on me. Now, at this point, I still had Metastanga. Like I was uh, mostly um, involved with the a style of yo- the Iyengar style of yoga. So this was like my kind of my practice in my twenties. 
Now, um, of course, because of my close relationship with Sogel Rinpoche, I uh, expressed a desire to enter into the monastic life. So I told Sogel that I wanted to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And uh, he very strongly responded by saying that um, this was not my path, that I needed to become more integrated into the world. So he's like, no, you, it's not a good idea for you to become a monk. He said, because of your nature, this is much too easy a path for you. Mm-hmm. So he sent me back into the world. So I went back to San Mateo after university and became a real estate appraiser. <laughs> and uh embrace the kind of materialistic lifestyle you know i i was uh i became quite successful this was uh, like the real estate boom of the 80s so um it was easy to make a lot of money during that time at that time i was like driving a uh an italian red alfa romeo um rally car I was uh, dressing in Italian suits. I, I think my budget during these years was like I was spending something like two to three thousand dollars a month on Italian clothing. Um, uh, I had uh, sort of embraced the whole lifestyle of smoking cigars and drinking whiskey, and all the while still practicing yoga. Yeah, yeah. So that was, that was your, uh, that was your thirties. That was in my 20s. Okay. And uh, also during this time, I, I, got, um, there, I got quite involved in the, um, there was kind of like a self-improvement, self-help movement during this time in the 80s, uh, particularly the work of a man named Werner Erhardt and uh, one of his associates, a man named Fernando Flores. So um, this was sort of like these kind of... Um, uh, self-help type of uh, work using, in, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but they're really using a lot of uh, spiritual philosophy uh, in these kinds of workshops to, you know, sort of like um, help people kind of do more self-reflection, basically. You know? So that had a very, very strong influence on me as well during my 20s. Now, um, uh, during my late 20s, early 30s is when I was introduced to Ashtanga. And this was, of course, probably the way that many men are introduced to Ashtanga. Is they start dating a woman who's doing Ashtanga. <laughs> right. So naturally, I embraced Ashtanga. And then during this time, um, uh, I was uh, during one of the early days of Ashtanga. I uh, was in a yoga studio that had a um, week-long workshop coming with a teacher named Tim Miller. So Tim Miller was teaching a um, a, work- a week-long workshop in San Francisco that I uh, attended. It was a lead primary uh, twice a day, morning and evening, uh, for a week. And we did, um, it, we did it twice. Uh, well, the. You're actually only supposed to do it once. Uh, no one told me. And of course, because of my fiery and obsessive personality, I thought, well, if once is good, twice is good. <laughs> so I went from basically not do- only doing Iyengar yoga maybe once yeah. or twice a week yeah. to doing lead primary series twice a day for a week. 
So that was my introduce, in, introduction. Did you find it easy style. straight away? Was it, yeah. Did it come naturally? Uh, no. Right. It did not come naturally. Okay. Um, I remember uh, just being in a world of pain, of course, during that week. Um, my and and by the way, during this week, I also decided it it was probably a good i it was a good idea to uh, to fast. So I was only drinking water during that week and doing lead primary twice a day. Um, I would take these like really in very very hot Epsom salt baths before and after practice. So I'd fill up the bathtub with Epsom salts and really really hot water and sit in the bathtub before and after practice and that was my routine for the week while fasting (laughs) (laughs) and uh, naturally um during i think towards the end of the week um it became so extreme that i stood up from the bath one time and and completely blacked out and uh and uh busted open my face falling out of the bathtub and knocking my head on the toilet bowl (laughs) So that was the I, beginning of my stanga practice. <laughs> but you persevered. Then what? Right. So what happened next? And yeah, this is a good I mean, sto- it was a really, really good like um, you know when I when I met the ashtanga practice, it really was it had the feeling of coming home. Right. Basically, you know that mm. level of intensity, that mm. level of focus. It was really like, um, you know, because I I had been like my general personality up until that point had been, I couldn't like stay in one place. I was one of those people, maybe like attention deficit disorder type people where I couldn't keep my attention in any one place. So I would switch from one activity to another, like quite quickly, you know, and Ashtanga was the one activity that like captured my attention and my energy and, and made it possible for me to focus, to relax. And, and so in many ways, you know, Ashtanga for me is like a, I, I figured it, it really saved my life, like, you know, because I was, uh, along with not being able to focus was like, all kinds of, my body also was kind of falling apart. Like I had this one issue, um, I had this issue that began when I was like around 19 or 20, where my shoulders started just randomly dislocating. So. Um, one of the reasons why I, and I was doing also, uh, as in my twenties, as well as doing yoga, I was also doing uh, martial arts, particularly yeah, I was Aikido. Say, you learned that with your dad, right? The Aikido. And, yeah. 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 Uh, actually not through my dad, but he was the reason why I was practicing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, during the practice of Aikido, I would regularly dislocate my shoulders. So that was one of the other, another attraction to Ashtanga was here was a practice that was more gentle than the martial arts that um, made made it possible for me to uh, not dislocate my joints as often. (laughs) Bonus. Yeah. So I had like, in my 20s, I had like probably 15, 16 dislocations on each side of my body. Shoulder dislocations. Mm, mm, mm. So, um, and also during this time, I was having like, severe lower back pain like once or twice a year my lower back would just like go out so i'd be immobilized for like three four days once or twice every year by extreme lower back pain right so but um 
the Ashtanga really, for my mental, emotional health, was just a, a real lifesaver during that time. So naturally, I jumped into Ashtanga with uh, you know my full energy, and uh, I had a great fortune of having some really access to really good teachers in San Francisco. Um, Tim Miller, obviously, regularly coming to town. Um, another teacher, Dominic Corigliano, oh, right. was coming to town. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> there's a, a, a couple living in San Francisco who are teaching out of their apartment called uh, Nikki and Eddie, uh, yeah. Eddie Modestini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Nikki Doan. Mm -hmm. um, also at the studio that I was attending, there was uh, a guy named Johnny Smith. <clears throat> who um, gave me a lot of attention. It was great because, you know, with Nikki and Eddie, we I would go over their place and there would be like, you know, at the most, maybe several students. So it was like two teachers, one to three students, and just full power adjustment every single, you know, pose. You loved it. And they, it and just I, yeah, I loved it. Just so raw and so, you know, were you were you the teacher that introduced Kino to Ashtanga? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. I heard that's that when somewhere. I was teaching yeah. at Jiva Mukti yeah. in New York. Well, that's a claim, uh, isn't it? I that's was... come on. We got to, We got to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carry See? on. Yeah, I know. Look, See? everybody. Yeah, yeah. Look how good he is. Um. Anyway, Carry is a great story. Carry on. All right. So you did that. All right. I mean, I'm really actually really enjoying getting to know you in this way, having not really talked. To, I mean, looks at I could try I'd hardly find I could hardly find any interviews. I could hardly find any interviews at all about you know with you online. So so this is this is a uh, this is my research on the go, as it were. Right. So yeah. Okay. So um, also like it, it was great because all of my teachers at the time, of course, were um, you know had had really really positive experience many experience in india so they're just constantly encouraging me like you have to go to mysore you have to go to mysore you have to go to mysore so uh in 95 i made my first trip to mysore and um it was such a such an adventure during that time of course because you know i mean there wasn't that many people going nobody really had any there's no real instruction on how to get there like i remember flying into chennai and uh being completely confused oh oh first i was flying on singapore airlines and um i was sitting in the i was of course connecting through singapore so uh i was in singapore sitting uh, waiting for the flight to india and a woman came up to me and said oh are you going to mysore i was like what how does she know I'm going to Mysore? And of course, she just saw that I had a yoga mat. And so just assumed that I was going to go to Mysore. And it turns out that was, uh, it, she ended up being my guide getting me to Mysore. I don't know how I would have gotten to Mysore otherwise, because I was completely lost at that point. Uh, but her name, uh, Louisa Sears. So another, you know, long time senior student. And she guided me all the way to Mysore. And um, so, I, first time in Mysore in 1995, um, just epic, epic experience, like life-changing in almost every single fashion. You know, this, of course, was the time of the, the old small shala, um, 
coming in to meet Guruji and having him tell me to come to class at 4.30 in the morning. Um, now, this 1995 was also significant from the fact that this was the year of Guruji's 80th birthday party. So I was able to be there during the time of his birthday party. Of course, this was in the summertime. And uh, and what made that so significant, of course, for me was the fact that all most of all the senior teachers of any note were there in Mysore. So I was like, you know, in the this small room that, of course, only fit 12 students mat to mat. And on one side of me was Tim Miller. On the other side of me was um, Richard Freeman. Over in the corner was Eddie Stern, you know, all these like, it's like the all-star team, you know, being a new Ashtanga student and just having all these senior practitioners there was just yeah, particularly awesome. Amazing. Um, right. And of course, you know, not knowing at all what to expect and what this was all about, going to the Shala 4.30 in the morning, waiting outside, you know, hearing, I mean, I wish I if somebody had made a sound recording of the shala during these early days because it was just this surreal type of soundscape you know it sound for me it sounded like there was a bunch of wounded animals in there you know you'd hear these like moans like <laughs> and there'd be people you know crying and all this kind of like weird body fluid sounds and you know it's just like what is going on in there, you know? And of course, uh, you know, with Guruji's method, like it, him being 80 years old, he was still kind of in his youthful energetic phase, you know? So like, it's funny to me how in kind of modern yoga uh, community now, it's like, largely speaking, there's this extreme level of care and even trepidation with regard to pain and injury mm. right so you go mm. into most modern style yoga classes and of course they're talking a lot about mm. you have to have proper alignment because mm. you have to avoid the injuries if you have an injury then it means something's wrong right that's kind of philosophically mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. modern yoga classes carry that yeah. kind of message and here you go to Mysore, especially in 95, and it looks like Guruji is actually trying to destroy people, you know, like taking raw beginners who you look at in this and you say, there's no way that person is going into a lotus position, half lotus, much less full lotus. And there he is on the floor with his full energy and strength trying to put people into full lotus position. You know, so it was a regular occurrence that there is these like dislocations happening and <laughs> all kinds of like horrific style pain, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, of course, that's this is during the time when he's kind of like chuckling and telling people, you know, no, don't say injury here, say only opening. You're having opening, not injury, you know. And, and of course, you're saying under your breath that this is not an opening. <laughs> this is obviously an and injury. Yeah, was your experience, and what did you think of that? How did you progress with with that style of teaching? And how how long were you staying there at these at this time? Well, this was uh, you know during most of my trips to India during this time, it was a minimum of three months, oftentimes staying up to six months uh, at a time, and um, and having like many back to back trips, like during the 
during the late 90s, I think I would come back to the States for three or four months at a time, make enough money and then go back for six months, you know? So it was, and, and of course, this was just great because also, also was a time before there, there was real popularity of going to Mysore. So there was maybe most times, maybe a maximum of five to 10 people in the room at a time, you know? So, but I, I came from a, you know, Asian based experience, understanding of, of, of practice. So it was like absolute obedience and no questioning of the teacher's authority. So I just kind of went along with it, you know? I mean, one of my most significant experiences from the early days was like, um, you know, after I'd been there a few weeks, you know, and like the, one of the first things that kind of shocked me was that he was like, from the get-go, no matter how stiff your back seemed, he was like trying to get you to grab your ankles in a back bend. You know, so the, from the first day, he's pulling my hands, trying to get me to grab my ankles. And I'm like, what? There's no way I'm doing this. But he kept doing it. So I kept going along with it. Yeah. And uh, after about two weeks there, I, um, in class, I had like one of the worst experiences of back pain I ever had. Like my back felt like I seriously ruptured some disc or something but i was like i couldn't like it was the most intense pain i ever felt before hmm. you know and naturally i go to guruji and i say like uh i think i need to take a break or a rest because my back is really is very painful and he of course said no don't worry you practice don't worry don't, don't work and and uh you know going back to class not only was he like not more gentle he seemed to be more <laughs> aggressive with me you know so during the next two three weeks i barely slept because i was anticipating the morning coming you know because yeah. it was so painful just to go into the class i mean i couldn't i couldn't really bend forward i could only stand or lie down i couldn't really bend forwards and you know i was just kind of barely making it through and every single day was this just extreme pain. But I kept going because that's what my teacher said to do, right? Now, after two to three weeks, I woke up one morning and the back pain was completely gone. Like, completely oh, so gone. Strange. And for the rest of my life, that back pain, which I had been experiencing, you know, once or twice a year going yeah. out to mm -hmm. extreme degree. Mm went away and it never came back so it was this kind of miraculous healing so obviously that made me like oh you know maybe this guy knows what he's talking about like this is like the first introduction to you know because in the west we grow up with this idea that we need the medical system right especially with something like that you cannot do without the drugs you cannot do without the procedures you cannot do without the surgeries you need this and our whole society and the whole medical system see, seemed to reinforce that. But here I was doing this weird practice in this weird place, you know, obviously thousands of miles from home. And I was healed. Like my back pain was healed. Like I couldn't believe so it. You, you think he saw something or he was doing something particular because he was doing that, I remember, to everyone, right? I mean, he was kind of cranking yeah. everyone and not everyone had the same healing yeah. story as yeah, you did. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, sometimes it seemed like he's just completely like didn't have a clue. Other yeah. times it seemed like he just yeah. knew things. Right, right, right. You Which know? is but you know possible. Both could be like said to be true. Like one yeah, time I yeah. asked him like I have uh, as part of my uh, shoulder surgery, I I got a uh like a two or three inch metal pin inserted oh, right. into my okay. right shoulder. Hmm. So I I was having a little bit stiffness on that side and I was like asking Gurji like what should I do about this pin in my shoulder? He's he just looks at me and says, "You take it out." I like take it out. Like he obviously is like, he doesn't understand what that yeah. means. That's like going in and getting this yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. intrusive surgery to take this metal pin out. And I have no idea what's going to happen to my shoulder afterwards. And yet afterwards, he said, yes, after you take it out, you do no back bending for one year. Hmm? And then it should be a, no problem. Like, <laughs> what? Where does he get this information from? You know, he must like. Does he know but, something? Yeah, but, but there was always that You didn't question. take it out. You didn't, right? No, I didn't take it no, out. No, no. <laughs> okay, so we never knew how that. We never know how that might have transpired. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Still right. have the metal pin. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that happened, you know, with numerous kind of things. You know, like uh, I remember one time. Uh, um, uh, Sharat was backbending me. It, 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 at this point, like they're doing these, you know, backbending you and walking your hands up your legs and trying to get you to grab above your knee and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, I, I had my left side went in and my, my right side's a little stiffer because of the metal pin. <laughs> and he just yanked my arm in and my elbow dislocated. You know, right? Things like that. Uh, but those kinds of things happen all the time. Uh, I remember um, one time in um, uh, third series, third series adjustment, you know, with a leg behind the head sitting on top of me and having my knee open up in, in, a, in a dramatic way. Um, the, the sound from the knee opening was so dramatic that a guy in the back row, I was in the front row, a guy in the back row said the sound was so, it affected him so much, he went in the bathroom and threw up. <laughs> <laughs> but... But you were adamantly in belief of that this system was, uh, you know, just kind of always transformative, right? You had complete faith. Yeah, in I it. was. Yeah, I was right. totally convinced that the system was and, like brilliant. Like, and now, do, know, I mean, like, did, have, did that change as you went through the, you know, your years in Mysore? And did it? Did it? I mean, you are you still? Or were you? Were you? And are you still teaching like that? Uh, well, I mean, because you better have good uh, I mean, insurance. I, sti if you, if I you still are. believe in the system as much as I ever did, but of course, you can't like just go completely against the current sort of narrative or culture in the classes. You know, if I were to teach like him back then, as I secretly kind of want to, then obviously you're not going to be a teacher for very long. You know, if people are kind of having these, um, intensive experiences <laughs> with you. <laughs> yeah, you could call it that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So naturally, you know, I'm I'm, you know, much more gentle than he ever was. Um but but it's but 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 you know, there's something profound that happens when you go through experiences like that and then you experience self kind of self-healing, you know, like the real 
power of the practice. Like, you know, you realize like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I don't need any of that. I don't need to go to the doctor. I don't need x-rays. I don't need any of these drugs that they are handing out so freely. I don't need the procedures, the surgical procedures that they say are so important. I don't need any of those things because if I just practice yoga and live in a particular way, everything heals itself, right? So, you know, um, and this kind of carries forth a theme um, that started fairly early in my life. Like I, I, you know, at the age of, for example, like at the age of 25, I realized like, you know what? Like, why does everybody use soap and shampoo? It's completely unnecessary. Not only is it not necessary, it seems to not be good for your health, <laughs> you know? So at age 25, I stopped using soap and shampoo and I haven't used soap or shampoo, you know, <laughs> since that age. So for, you know, close to 40 years, I haven't used any soap or shampoo. Well, you what know? do you use to wash? Just water. Just water. Water's Just great. water. Nothing water's else. Water's amazing. Or deodorant? Yeah. Do you, do you, do you put no, deodorant? Nothing. 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 I mean, I like to use, I I like to rub coconut oil on my body because it feels good and smells nice. But I don't. Yeah, there's no need for any fragrances. There's no need for any soaps. There's no need for any of that. Like, you know. Well, so it's definitely a radical philosophy you're espousing here. Yeah. I haven't like I haven't. I I see the medical system. I see doctors as largely unnecessary. So I haven't been to. I haven't had health insurance i haven't gone to see a doctor in, in in years you know and even like in my 30s i stopped going to the dentist like i didn't like i realized like if i stop going to the dentist i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna probably have less issues and it's true like you know when i used to go to the dentist on a regular basis they'd regularly find cavities and, <laughs> and have to do like you know cavity drilling and filling and all that kind of stuff and but when I stop going to the dentist, all of a sudden I stop having cavities. Like, hmm. Like maybe everything that they say we need, we don't need. And that's kind of the, it's kind of yogic message, right? <laughs> How did the, the practice of Ashtanga Yoga kind of develop further this idea? Because I know for what, for my small bit that I found about you before the interview, you're very interested in the inner inquiry process behind the asana how, how does that how does that kind of dovetail into what seems like for some people particularly those that don't practice ashtanga like a pretty brutal experience that you're um you know you're you're, you're sharing with me yeah yeah i mean i it, again i think it's a, a combination of lots of different elements you know like all the the fascination and, and interest in spiritual philosophy both through Eastern teachers and Western teachers who had gone to the East, um, you know, just really informed me, like, because if you really look at it, like, if you really take the essence of the philosophy of yoga or any kind of perennial spiritual philosophy in general, it goes against our current values, right? Because we live in, a, in an age that is highly materialistic, and uh, so we're constantly just our conditioning is to extend our senses, our minds, our awareness, our attention externally, like very, very little informing us to go inwardly. So that's why we live in this kind of reality, I think, in modern culture in which we need, like I need money, 
I need, you know, wh- oh, what happens if I get cancer? I have to have like, you know, at least a million dollars in the bank. So if I get cancer, I can like pay for the treatment that I need to save my life. You know, even this obsessive attachment to life, like, like, as if death is this horrible thing, you know, it's just all of it is so yeah, so what, what it's happens if you get upside cancer? down from the perennial philosophy, as far as I can tell. So like, I started to experiment, like, what happens if I just go against the values that I grew up with, and follow these kind of, you know, directions that are seem to be being whispered from these spiritual texts? Like, what happens if you instead of looking outward, you start to look inward, right? when you ask like, like one of the philosophical questions that has really captivated me is what is real and what is not real, right? What happens if like you start recognizing, oh, wait a minute, many of the things that they're trying to teach us are real are actually not real. And a lot of the things that they're trying to teach us are not real are actually real. So you start to switch everything up and down, right? So what, what happens if you just start saying like, okay, society our conditioning tells us this what happens if i do the opposite on a regular basis and it's astounding it's astounding you know it's sort of like you know I, I often say like it's sort of like when they when the mass of people believe that the world was flat you know and of course they're telling you you can't sail beyond that point because you'll go off the edge of the earth right well, what happens when the people just start to challenge that particular belief and they find out not only is there no end to the earth, there's these fantastic places you can go visit that are beyond the boundary of where people say you can go. And that's exactly the experience of what happens when you start challenging the current values of our society. Start realizing not only do I not need it, but it's actually life is much better without the need or the attachment or the feeling that I need this particular thing, right? So no no doctors, no medical system, no health insurance, no washing with soap, no brushing your teeth, no nothing. But, I mean, like, but what, uh, what happens if you do <laughs> get sick? What, what are you going to do if you get sick and you get cancer then? I mean, you're just going to let it, let it take its course, for example? Yeah, like, like you know, like... like um, Another incident that happened in Mysore, I had a motorcycle accident, completely separated my interior anterior ligaments in my right knee, you know, had trouble, like, I couldn't even, like, uh, stand up from a backbend because my knee would dislocate, it was that open, and, like, and, like, uh, you know, of course, you know, being the fool that I am, I go to the Guruji again and say, I had this motorcycle accident. I have no stability in my knee. What should I do? And he's like, yeah, no problem. You practice well, like eight months. Uh, no problem. It's all better. So I continue to practice every day with that condition. And after eight, nine months, my knee was not only like repaired, but it was better <laughs> than it was before. <laughs> like, you know, this is something like, if you went to any medical specialist, especially orthopedic surgeon, he'd say, you need surgery. You yeah, must have it. You cannot have you know it. That you're, what you're, you're going to ruin your going, life if you don't yeah, have it. I mean, what you're saying is going against the grain of a lot of people's experience as well. I and mean, what makes yeah. you have this experience where some people, many people in Ashtanga didn't have the same experience as you? Uh, I, I don't know if <laughs> I can explain that. You know, yeah, I just yeah. had this 
supernatural kind of faith. Like I right. just thought, yeah, I was good. Right. why not? Like why, 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 why? I mean, because obviously if you can't break the belief that you need it, then you're probably going to have the experience that you need it, right? And do you think the, as- the approach to the asana has a relation to that? I mean, when you say that it's a journey going inwards and they're questioning and they're real and unreal, I mean, you know, a lot of people practice, ash- you know, Ashtanga yoga, they go through advanced series, they don't question it at all. When you, like, for example, when you start realizing, I don't need the positive opinions of other people. Like, not only do I not need it, it's actually like a kind of uh, 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 an addiction, uh, 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 a problem if I do feel like I need it, right? So, you go through this period where you start saying, I don't need it. And, of course, people are going to resist you know, what you're trying to do, especially your closer friends and family, if you want walk, walk around and say to them, I don't need your positive opinion anymore, they're going to be, you know, deeply offended, and try to change your mind. But then when you realize, oh, I don't need it, there's a sense of freedom. Hmm. Right? So you actually start living and experiencing what they're trying to tell you in the spiritual literature. Right? Because basically, if you look at the essence of the spiritual literature, it's like, no, everything you need is inside you. There's nothing there. In fact, there is no outside of you. <laughs> right? There is no there there, mm-hmm. as Ram Dass would say, you know? <laughs> so, if you start to, like, actually challenge the pre-existing belief and, and conditioning, what you start to experience is a whole nother level of reality, basically. You know, this is, to me the essence of the yoga practice this is what this is the purpose of practicing right as opposed to a lot of people what they believe is the purpose of practicing is to improve your body and to avoid injury like mm. you know guruji would say like continuously yoga is not exercise this is not yeah. exercise this is not exercise like what the hell does he mean that this is not exercise you know most of the westerners obviously it's exercise <laughs> Right? You, I mean, you, like everyone, like me and like everyone else, yeah, I mean, you made your way through the series. You know, you got certified, you completed the advanced series. I mean, why did you do that then and not just go in there and do sun salutations? Um, I think it was just immersion in the, the Mysore culture there, you know? Because uh, since that point, you know, I, of course, I have far less attachment i place far less value on the asana practice than i used to like the real value of the practice is what happens on a much more subtle level you know mentally emotionally philosophically that is that is really the essence of the practice that we use the physical practice to access these more subtle dimensions of experience right in the practice or outside the practice? I mean, how when you say both, use it, I both, mean, both. many people um, are, I practicing, think are practicing a practice as a practice, you know, like there's a value in the, the actual practice itself that that cannot be explained, right? N- none of us can really explain it with any degree of satisfaction. You know, you go into the room, you're just moving and breathing, and and the experience is, yeah, especially after sustained practice, regular practice after many years, you're like, yeah. This is not a physical practice. This is meditation. This is a way of connecting to myself on a profound level. Like, this is not exercise. Yeah. 
I mean, of course, the form itself ha- looks like exercise and can be easily confused with exercise, but it's not exercise. Like, it, it's it's completely different than going to the gym and working out. You know, there's something happens, and I think it's because of the the method, the synchronization of breath and movement, the you know, yeah. us, and not to mention like the power of what they call paramparam, which is the you know some some kind of energetic something comes through this lineage. I'm not quite sure how to explain that, but it's like you know something happens in the in the touch and the energy and the experience of sharing this with people who are who have actively participated in the you know actual lineage itself. You know. Can I ask you what your what kind of practice you do now? What is your practice look uh, like right now? now? Like um, I still am practicing daily. Um, I'm not doing any uh, of the advanced practices. I'm just sticking with just primary, and um, oftentimes half primary, and uh, it feels amazing. It's wonderful, you know. But yeah, gone are the days where it was like the asana asana practice was at the top. Like, oh, I have to do my full advanced practice. I have to do my full intermediate practice. I have to stay on schedule. You know, all all that is well. I mean, give yourself a break. You're you're 63. I mean, for God's sakes. That's yeah. I mean, how much longer do you (laughs) want to? I mean, God bless. You know, the senior practitioners who are doing still doing advanced series until their 50s and 60s. But it's like. You know how how much longer? I mean, what's the real point of the practice, basically? Do you combine that with meditation and pranayama? I know you're into chanting. I've seen you do. You know, you're quite into bhajan. Yeah, lots lots of both, lots of chanting, formal, informal chanting, Um, mostly just informal meditation. Like I'll just find myself just sitting. You know, you're sitting there. You kind of half close your eyes, close your eyes, and you just sit there for ten minutes, twenty minutes at a time. It's just like why. Why wouldn't you do that? Isn't it kind of natural to to feel that you know? Because uh, also, you know, I think I I, I think my lifestyle also now you know helps now that. if you're sitting if you're sitting somewhere without your phone, people think you're a lunatic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, and uh, and I and I uh, um, did an interview like a few months ago, and I made the mistake of being way too honest. So this interview, I'm being um, much more careful. <laughs> oh no, don't. <laughs> you don't need to be. You don't know. You don't need to be at all. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking with that last interview. I was like, I was like, can we actually erase that interview and do a new one? Because I'm not sure how the response is going to be. What did you say? Tell me. Tell me something you said that you, you felt was too honest. Go on. Well, I mean, we'll just say but that we'll like, round it out. We'll round off the interview. I, now. I tell to tell a, me something a bit a more. Point, like you can imagine what 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 a. Uh, life of a person who says i'm going to go against all the values that i was raised i love it yeah right yeah especially like a person of i've got some japanese heritage in me so you know the the japanese are particularly well behaved polite people so i have this side of me that's like do you speak japanese do you speak japanese by Uh, the way (laughs) just a little right so like so one after another i started to say like Oh, everybody is telling me and every and everything within me is telling me to go this one way. What happens if I go the other way? And you can imagine, like, as a Japanese person, as a yoga teacher, 
right? As a spiritual person, like you're supposed to like be a certain way, right? You're supposed to be always be polite. You're always supposed to say the right things. You're not supposed to talk about certain subjects. You're supposed to uh, absolutely respect and honor certain boundaries. You know, you're supposed to be a certain way. Like what happens if you say, what, what happens if I just be who I am in the moment, right? And of course, during this particular modern time, this is, like I said, we're living in super materialistic times, super, like you could say, dark time, right? This is, you know, according to some, it's Kali Yuga. This is the age of darkness. So what happens if I start to just be myself, right? Which is, you know, let's be honest with ourselves and say, like, people living during a materialistic time are particularly ego-centered people, right? even narcissistic, even though we pretend not to be narcissistic. M- most, most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot of narcissistic, narcissistic tendency, right? We're incredibly self-concerned, self-obsessed, um, self, naturally selfish, uh, and maybe not many people are going to agree with me with this time, but naturally dishonest and devious. De- <laughs> Yeah. I mean, people are not going to like, as a yoga teacher, you're not going to say, oh, I have this thought right now. Or I, I you know, I think you I might. have this. I, well, <laughs> I might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I might not because I've experienced the consequences. Right. Okay. I'll show you what directly. Shame. Yeah. yeah no. You know, so <laughs> like, um, it became quite clear to me at a certain point, like, I've got to disrupt this primary level of conditioning that I have within me, right? And the way you do that is by through honesty Mm. and through certain kind of action. Like if you do things that you believe are not good to do, you're going to, you know, quote unquote, make a mistake. And depending on the level of the value, you're going to make a big mistake. And when you make those kinds of mistakes, or you make a kind of mess in your life, that's how you learn. That's how you disrupt the programming. That's how you see like what's underneath everything, right? If you're always like polite and nice, you never disrupt that programming. So it always operates at full strength in the background. So what happens if you start saying, you know what, I'm going to like, people said I shouldn't do this. Well, I'm going to do this. And you find out very quickly, like, whoa, like all the chaos, all the energy for movement and change and transformation. Yeah, of course, it's being reflected on the outside, but the bulk of it is coming up with from within, you know. So during certain periods of my life, going through tremendous experience of shame and guilt and like uh, unworthiness and uh, being unlovable, all these things that most of us walk around with, but in it's more in the background, right? Mm, mm. And as long as it stays in the background, then you cannot, you cannot really af- affect any kind of noticeable change. Yeah. Right. But the minute you bring it, bring it into the foreground, like imagine if if you had like a, I don't know if you ever saw a movie by Jim Carrey called The Yes Man. No. 
Well, it's uh, he he attends a self help workshop in which he's encouraged to say yes to everything, no matter what it is. He says yes. Okay, and if you realize, like, whoa, that's actually a yogic method, like. You know, because most of us are saying mostly no, 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 no. So the minute you start saying yes, for example, like what happens if you just started saying speaking your mind without a filter? I think you've got imagine what's going to happen to your life. Like it's just going to you're going to be thrust into deep chaos, and you're going to have to face all of the uncomfortable things that you never faced before, and that's. That was very large stretches of my life, you know. How wonderful. I really have enjoyed meeting you. And, yeah, where are you teaching now? Uh, I'm currently in a place called Bellingham, Washington. Okay. It's in the northwest corner of the United States, about less than an hour away from the Canadian border. All right. And finally, I always ask this question, what are your guilty pleasures and an inspiration? <laughs> guilty pleasures and inspiration well um uh i'll not go into too much detail but i'll say that uh um i love music i love the wilderness uh um one thing that we haven't talked about is my current lifestyle like uh, i'm um I've been uh, kind of a full-time van life person uh, uh, for the past 10 years. And even before that, I was doing some van life living. uh, We didn't call it van lifing back then. We called it being homeless in a vehicle. But I love living the kind of nomadic lifestyle where there's no fixed location for home, spending large periods of time in the wilderness. Um, cooking meals on a fire outside, um, listening to great music. Um, that's, these are really my guilty pleasures. Mm-hmm.